Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. Today we're going to talk about pivoting after a layoff. God, there's so many layoffs judging by the headlines. Yeah, I actually looked it up uh, for reference for an article and it said that there were 100,000 tech layoffs in the U.S. in last month alone between Google, Microsoft, Amazon, um, there's well, loads. It feels like a rite of passage for these companies. It's like CEOs get a bump in their stock price after they announce layoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like they have to do it. But to be on the other end of that is no damn fun. No, not at all. So so, so fair warning, dear listener, this is going to be kind of a beginner episode for folks who maybe either just got laid off, recently got laid off, or are, you know, watched their friends just get unceremoniously frog walked out of the building and uh, and are maybe thinking that this job security maybe isn't so real after all and are thinking about taking their skills on the road as a solo consultant for the first time. So if that's not you, then, you know, stick. we'd love to have you stick around and see if, uh, keep us honest, let's say, or tell us we got anything wrong. But um, this is for your friends who are thinking about making the leap for the first time and, and aren't really, in a really, like, they don't know what they don't know at this point. Mm. So the big thing when you're first getting started in consulting, at least certainly was for me, but I've seen it with a lot of other people as well, is you are in that sort of technician mindset that Michael Gerber talks about in the E-Myth, which is that, you know, you come to work on Monday and there's a pile of stuff to do on your desk that magically appeared in you and you use your craft, your skills, your expertise to plow through that and and you know, you might not love your job, but you probably like it. You probably like what you're doing. I loved what I was doing, actually, the, the actual craft of it, maybe not the administrative stuff or the, uh, you know, the, the sort of politics of being at a job. But my actual work, I really liked, and I liked getting better at it. And even after work, I would read books on it and try and get better at it. And it was fun. It was like, it, it felt like gaining mastery in a valuable skill. And, and when I went, when I was imagining going solo, I ended up going inside of a firm, thank God. But when I was imagining freelancing, because I had a couple of side gig offers and things like that when I wanted to leave corporate America, I was, I just imagined I, it would sort of magical thinking, but I just figured it would be like that. I would just, you know, clients would somehow show up and I would do amazing work for them. And that work, I, I guess I thought that amazing work would get me more clients. Somehow other people would magically know that I did great work. Yeah, you just have to be really good and everybody comes to you. Right. Yeah, I'm just, everyone will automatically know I'm amazing at this and work will, people just knock on the door, send me email, call me on the phone and, and want to pay me money. And turns out <laughs> that's not how it works. And, but, but here's the, <laughs> here's the tricky thing though. The tricky thing is a lot of times it does work like that the first year or so because you you quit your job. That's like a, a classic, take this job and shove it, uh, David versus Goliath, underdog kind of story that people just love to tell. They love to help underdogs. And uh, maybe your friends and family are a little bit nervous for you. They're all rooting for you. They all know you're, you're a wonderful person and probably do great work. And they tell everyone they know. It's like, hey, you know, Jonathan's like going out on his own to do FileMaker development or whatever. And, you know, do you need anything like that? Do you know anybody that needs anything like that? And and you can land a couple of clients 
uh, right out of the gate from this sort of this sort of friend of a friend word of mouth old school social networking type of stuff uh, another thing that can happen is that you this is I've heard a lot of this happened to a lot of people where they go solo but they're they if they didn't get laid off they're past employer still needs them to do some stuff to like clean up some stuff or to finish with a particular client or, or finish a particular project. So they go solo and then they, they consult air quotes for their previous employer on sort of a part-time basis or an hourly basis or whatever it is. So you can, in that first year, this collection of maybe, maybe your past employer or friends of friends of friends who throw some work your way can kind you know, and, the, and those things don't usually, you know, they take time. And so you know, if those things kind of overlap, then you can you can fill up your first year with solid cash flow, or at least get getting by kind of cash flow, uh, without without spending a ton of time trying to find the work. Exactly, that's the thing because that's the that's the problem with the first year is is that it can be just ridiculously good, and you're not doing anything really other than you know closing on deals that are presented to you. Right. So you can get this kind of false sense that, oh, this is what it's always going to be like. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the thing. So it's kind of like you get this free year. You get this free year of like mar- free marketing, like your your network and your past employee, all these things. It's like it's like a gimme. And it, and you you it's a shame to not use that time to learn how to business, like learn the craft of business building a profitable business that you want to show up and and work at every day doesn't happen by accident any more than designing a beautiful car happens by accident or designing a robust software Mm -hmm. application happens by accident. It's not by accident. So it's, it's a craft like anything else. It's a skill that you can learn. You can get educated, you can read, you can get coaching, you can watch videos, you can take courses. There's a million things you can do to get better at running a business because that's what you that's what you're doing now. It seems like, yes, you're a consultant or you're a freelancer or you're a coach or whatever you call yourself when you quit your full-time job and hang out your own shingle. But you're not just that. That's you, the employee. That's you, the employee that's going to do the delivery That in your, in your head. Um, the way you're thinking of it, what you're thinking of is yourself as the employee. But you're also the business owner. And as a business owner, you have other responsibilities and things that you need to do that you never had to do at your job. So you might not even consciously be aware of them but in this first year you need to exercise those muscles and spoiler alert it's sales and marketing you need to exercise those muscles so that when (laughs) your your gimme your free ride clients eventually end in you know 12 to 18 months and they're all set you're not looking around like how am I going to pay my mortgage yeah it's that deer in the headlights look that happens because you know most people that do this we we do it because we love the craft of whatever it is that we're we're experts or becoming experts on we do it for that reason so our happiest moments can be head down doing the thing and it's not oh let me write an article let me do a social media post about this it's it's about the work and as long as that work keeps coming in you're going to be like you like the seven dwarfs whistling a happy <laughs> tune right cuz you're happy at your work you yeah, love right. it and and so what you don't want is you don't want for it to all just come to a screeching halt which is probably how it felt when you were laid off 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it came to a screeching halt because somebody else made a decision that was outside of your control. Right. And the difference with running a business is that you have a lot more control. You don't have total control. Nobody ever does. But you have a lot more control about what you say yes to and how you make sure that your pipeline is full, you know, according to your definition of full, right. so that you can maximize the amount of time you spend in in your genius zone, in doing what you love that you're really good at, and you're getting better at at the same time. Yeah, totally. So in thinking about this, you know, for this article I was writing, I, I sort of, there's this sort of like, there's sort of this stuff that's easy to Google for that p- people listening might have questions about, like, should I form an LLC or an S corp or a sole prop or get business insurance? Or, you know, that, that all this stuff that's that's general business advice that you could Google for really easily. Uh, so that's not really what we're talking about today. But if you're looking for a resource, check out Erica Goody's podcast. Past guest Erica Goody has a great series of one-on-one sort of tax and legal stuff for people like like you. Exactly. We want to talk about is the more mysterious stuff, the things that are more specific to the kind of business you're starting, a solo consultancy, first time ever. And and I grouped, there's a million things you have to do, I suppose, uh, but I grouped it into three big buckets that I labeled delivery, sales, and marketing, as we've been sort of already alluding to. And the delivery piece, like I said, is, is is just another name for the kind of work that you're used to doing. It's the stuff you did for your employer. You probably enjoy it. You probably, you know, love getting better at it and so forth. And, and you probably think that doing a great job is how you're going to magically get new clients. You might get some from referrals, but it's it's not super dependable. So that that you could call that delivery. And that's that's you working in your business doing client work. But then there's sales which is, um, you could, we, we could, let's, let's argue about this, but I see sales as it's like the set of activities required to convert an interested prospect into a paying client. So you have someone who's definitely considering hiring you and there's stuff you have to do from that point until they pay you that, that I would call sales. It's, it's kind of it's sort of you could argue about where marketing stops and sales begins, but that's where I define it. Where do you think? I actually like that definition because marketing is what you do to get them to be interested, right? Right, to get them to that that first point. And I think of selling as once you know you have a prospect, then it's the process of nurturing them through until they either buy or they make the decision not to buy and they go back in the queue. Yes. I agree with that. Yeah. So this would be so activity wise, this would be things like uh, following up with prospects. So someone, you know, reaches out and says, hey, Alice said you were amazing. We should talk. Can you, you jump on a, a phone call? And you say, yeah. And then they they don't schedule it or, or you know, it's like, oh, I'm not ready to talk now, but I'll be ready in next month. So you, there's this follow up thing that you need to do in, under the sales sales umbrella. Then there's actually conducting a sales meeting when you do get on the phone with someone. And, you know, in my case. Well, this is this is probably for new listeners, but then this is where I would have the why conversation. But that's a whole separate topic. But you have to have a sales meeting with the client to find out what it is that they think they want you to do, and and validate whether or not it would be a good fit for the two parties to work together. And then if you do decide that it does make sense to move forward, you probably write a proposal. You know, for someone who's just a brand new consultant, that's probably probably what they're doing, write some kind of proposal that you would then present to them 
you'd negotiate the deal. Maybe they want different payment terms or they want a different rate or a different price or a different scope of work. So there's some sort of negotiation. And then finally, you come to an agreement and then you finalize it. So there might be, some, you know, I don't know, an SOW or there might be NDAs. There might be some paperwork that needs to go back and forth. Uh, but then, you know, they they pay you if you're getting paid up front and you and then you would move that person into the delivery phase of the engagement. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's um, and and I think what happens sometimes is people get, especially when you do your first view, it's like, what do I do? Is this a proposal? Is it a contract? Isn't it an SOW? What do I need? What do I say yes to? Um, so it's yeah, it's a little bit intimidating the first couple times you go through it, and then you just get used to it and get comfortable. Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of things that you can find on the internet. So certainly, I mean, we've talked about them loads in past episodes, but you can Google oh, around. Oh, there's a if, gazillion episodes right here. Yeah, yeah. You can. This, these are things you can Google for. The, the the point of bringing them up is for you to be aware of the mechanics, like the skeleton of that process, and that it's not just it's not just a thing you do. It's like an it, it's its own skill, like getting that stuff, getting good at those things, and organizing them in a way that's not a lot of work is something that you can get better at, and probably should. Yeah. Yeah. I think sales can be intimidating to some people. I've never found sales intimidating. I kind of embrace it. Um, but it's the selling process is the, is the art of taking someone who's interested and showing them how you can help them, how you can transform their situation into something better. So it's it's how you demonstrate that you can help someone specifically. So it's actually a great learning opportunity for you and and you still learn by the way 10 years in 20 years in even you're still learning how you can apply your skill set to that specific client or prospects situation and i just think it's it's actually it can be energizing if you allow yourself to go with it yeah i totally agree it's some pieces of it some pieces of it are more straightforward than others like you know finalizing agreements is probably pretty straightforward uh, writing proposals is kind of like that can be uh, take is sort of like a hybrid. It's like, ah, it's like some boilerplate and, and s- some basic stuff that you're going to do. But also there's a, a little bit of skill to it, uh, or maybe more than a little bit of skill. It's certainly something that you can improve. And then something like negotiation, mm-hmm. if you're in a negotiation with someone, that's like a, a lifelong skill that no matter what you end up doing uh, is something that always pays to get better at. So there's a, there's, I mean, entire Mm -hmm. libraries of books on probably all of these subjects. Um, But yeah, look no further than, than the back catalog here, but certainly you can Google around and find tons of resources for all of these things. I don't think it's, 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 it's not super mysterious. Sample proposals and sample NDAs and contracts and yeah, all of those. But the, and, and I think our point here, or one of our points is that those things are important but what really matters is the interaction that you're having with people in this stage. The paperwork just supports that. This is about, you know, starting to build that relationship with someone who will become a client of yours. Hmm. What maybe before we jump off of this, is there what are your mindsets that you would share when walking into this kind of a a sales interview? I like to call them our sales meeting. Look for someone who's first time out of the gate. What, if you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I think the mindset is, how can I help these people? 
And so you want to you want to do more listening than talking. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're going in, try to find out as much as you can about the problem that they're experiencing, so that maybe you can't help them, or maybe you're not exactly the right solution. But you're going to leave them happy that they met with you, so that they will either bring you back for something that's more up your alley or they'll refer you to someone else who needs the, um, the, your particular skill set. But it's listening with this idea of how I can help them. The second you're focused on how can I sell myself, mm-hmm. you've, you've missed your opportunity because you won't hear the other things that the client says that don't align with that. Yep. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Is um, that what you find? Yes. My, my, f- approach to it is exactly the same in principle. I talk about it a little bit different, a little bit differently. So like when you walk into one of the, a meeting like this, don't pitch. And what do you do instead of pitching? You try to talk them out of working with you, like in a polite, confident sort of perhaps with some humor. And it, it achieves the exact result that you just described, Rochelle, which is like you, you're, you're almost giving them the experience of what it's like to be working with you as a consultant where, you know, they say, oh, we really want you to build this, that, and the other. And you say, oh, I can definitely do that. Um, can we step back and, and talk about why you want to do that of all the things you could do? Why is it that? And and good clients will will just like love this. They'll just be, yeah, let's talk about that. And they'll get into the, all of the behind this, you know, the, the motivation for why they want to do this particular thing and why they need to do it now, why they want someone like you instead of all the other things they could do. And you'll find out so much about them and the project and their hopes and dreams and worries and fears around whatever this engagement might be or whatever the outcome is that they're looking for. And then you can decide whether or not you think you can help. So the other thing I always say is, is when you go into a meeting like this, be like a doctor, you know, you're not, you're not there to sell surgeries. I mean, if you're a good doctor, you're there to, to make the patient better and help them in any way. So if they come running in and they ask for a triple bypass, you don't just give it to them. You diagnose the situation and you give them a therapy that you think is appropriate to their, their, their whole being. So just, just don't pitch. It, it's the worst. And you know, I understand that if you need the money, it's hard not to feel desperate and pitch. But that's the last that is the worst thing you can do. Well, I think this is a it's it's a learning process, and I'm I'm really focused on a beginner audience where what you just described, and I agree with it. That is, I, I think of it as you know why this, why now, and why me are those like three kind of questions that I try to get a client to answer. Um, but when you're first starting, that stuff can feel like like Mount Everest. And so a way to start, if, you, if, if you've already done this a while, then, then try what Jonathan just said, because it absolutely works. It's, I mean, we've, we've both done it for years with great success. Um, but if you're just getting started, just focus on listening, because your instinct is going to be to do the opposite. It's going to be to explain to them why they need you yes. and why you're exactly the right person to build their app or fix this problem. And that's not going to do it. Just listen. And then, and the best part about listening is that you don't necessarily have to have to um, tell them how you would solve their problem in that call. It might be that you say, you know, this has been really interesting and I'd like to think about this a little bit and propose 
the, the right way forward that will address your concerns. So if you get kind of tangled, you can always do that. So you can come back to win another day. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, especially for a technical audience. Uh, I know from my own experience and from working with tons of people that there's a strong desire to start solving the client's problem in that meeting start designing the solution in your head or even brainstorming with them how you could solve it. We could do this and we could do that and it would be so great. And it would look like this and it'd be like the Facebook thing. And and you just resist the urge to do yeah. that. So when, <laughs> yeah, when Rochelle is saying listen, like actively listening, not, not deciding what you're going to say when they stop talking or deciding, you know, being distracted by how you might solve this problem that they haven't even finished describing to you. Just listen. And it can help to take notes, even if you don't need the notes, even if the meeting's being recorded or something, it can help to take notes because oh, it- take notes. No, yeah, take notes. It focuses you on on them. It, it solidifies it, what you're hearing when it comes out your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to be <laughs> yeah. thinking, it's hard to be listening to them and writing it down and thinking other stuff at the same time. It's, it's harder to ignore them is what I'm saying. So if, if you- Well, and the other thing, there's a little trick you can do if you're- practicing listening and you're not as comfortable with it yet. And so you force yourself to very closely listen to what the other person is saying and then sort of summarize it in a sentence. And, you know, this is going to sound so sh- like shrinky, but you can do it in, in your own style so it doesn't sound that way. And you could say, so what I'm hearing you say is, and you make a statement and they'll say yes or they'll say no, or even better, they'll say yes, but, or yes, and. And you'll get more information, but you're also able to test. And you can also just ask a question. So when you said you had a problem with X, did you also have a problem with Y? And it, it gives you this dialogue so it's not a presentation and you're really having a chance to, to actively listen and understand their point of view about their situation. So important. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so maybe that's enough in the sales area. So... We started off this sort of section talking about what sales is and that it, it's the stuff that happens between when someone raises their hand to talk about possibly working together and, and after that and before when they sign on the dotted line. So, so Rochelle, how do you get people to raise their hand and say that they might want to work with you? Marketing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know what's what's kind of interesting. You know, if if we think about like our our ideal listener for this episode is someone who's ju- you know just been laid off and they're kind of deciding, you know, do I want to just hang out my shingle and all that? Probably your first experience is either going to be with with well, it, it will probably be with sales because you've got to get that first client to sign on the dotted line. Then it will be delivery, and in that first year. Most people don't even think about marketing or if they think about it, it's, oh, I need a business card, you know, <laughs> or I need a, I need a, like a one page website just so people can see this, or I need to update my LinkedIn page. Maybe you're not even thinking about a website yet at this point. Right. So marketing is all of those things where your people will become aware of you. And I think what happens when you first start, especially in the first year two years, maybe even three, depending on how in demand your skill set is, is that you're so focused on serving anybody who shows up that you aren't thinking really about niching. Like you're more focused on what you do, like your skill set than you are about the particular kind of client you want to attract. 
So marketing in the beginning is really about letting people know what kinds of problems you can solve for them. Even if it's more general, and even if five years from now you'll look back and laugh <laughs> at what you wrote, it's it's the starting point. Yeah, for sure. So if you think about, you, you're probably, dear listener, you're probably exposed to people marketing at you all day long in social media, email, uh, Google searches, and so forth. And you might not have the greatest taste in your mouth because of a lot of bad marketing, but but marketing, the thing about marketing is I think when it's done well, it's like gardening. You need to do a little bit every day, always, you know, or at least weekly, you know, a little bit regularly. Have a system. And, right. And just work the system. And at first, this is definitely the case with me and lots of people I've worked with. At first, it's kind of a mess. Well, let's actually, let me pause there and back up a second. Marketing could is, is sort of showing up usually with content that you're that someone in the market might be interested in. I usually talk about it in terms of ideal buyers, but you're not going to probably know what that is in your first year. You're not going to know who your ideal buyer is. You might not even know who your target market right. is, but you do want to show up in places where people who might have problems you can solve are hanging out. So people are hanging out. You suspect that they have problems you could solve and you want to show up there and be helpful. So what does that actually look like? It could look like speaking at conferences that are attended by people who might be prospects or guesting on podcasts that they listen to or blogging for websites that they read or, uh, I mean, writing in a trade journal for, for an industry that you could serve at a high level or publishing screencasts of technical things that, that, that you know people who hire you would want to know how to do or would want to find people who could do it for them hosting a podcast, running webinars, sending newsletters. So it's basically uh, in this list of things, and you, there's a, you know dozens of others for sure. There's two, I, I categorize them in two types. There's things that, where you're typing words and there's ones where you're speaking words. It's all words, but they're speaking types of marketing activities and there are writing types of marketing activities. And for folks who are just starting out, I would pick one of each. Because if you're building a consulting engagement, you need to be speaking and writing a lot. You need to get your ideas out there into the world, especially in not just the broader world, but in, especially in front of the world of your buyers or people who might be interested in buying from you. So if you can put your ideas in front of them through in a, in a format where they can hear your voice speaking in the ideas um, and also in a place where they can read your ideas, I think that is the one-two punch of marketing for a consultancy, especially a solo consultancy. And, you know, so I would just say, look at, look at the list of all the speaking things you could do or the writing things you can do and pick one of each that's the easiest and then commit to doing it at least once a week, each of them at least once a week, every week, forever. Even, not just even, but especially when you're book solid doing delivery, when you're book solid with client work in that first yes. year. It's going to be so easy to slack off or not even start doing any marketing, but that's like, that's, it's, that's what ends up sticking you in the feast famine cycle, which you might not be familiar with as a new person, <laughs> but it is a gut wrenching experience. That, yeah. Yeah. That you will not enjoy. <laughs> 
It's like that that sophomore year slump. You know, there's the freshman 15, mm-hmm. there's the sophomore slump. I think the other thing is that, you know, when you when you think about this, and I, can, I could almost feel someone going, I have to write and speak once a week? Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you what. If you're still inside an organization, the best time to start that is then mm-hmm. because you will become known in your industry associations. I mean, assuming you're going to stick with, with that, you have a, a wider group of contacts and people who you know kind of know what happened with the layoffs and they will help you. They will look for opportunities for you. So yeah, it's it, it is easier if you start ahead of time. And and yes, if you're inside an organization, you're not going to write and speak, you know, once a week. But the more that you do it before you leave, the softer your landing will be because you'll have all those contacts in place already. I, I've worked with someone who came out of a well-known firm and she wrote um, a bunch of their content and it always went out with her name. So when she went out on her own, literally everybody knew who she was. It didn't matter that she didn't have her own mailing list because they all said, oh, sign me up. I mean, they practically threw their cards mm-hmm. at her when she was at her first couple of conferences. So yeah, there's there's a bunch of ways you can do this. And, and no matter what choices you made when you were in your corporate life, there's a way to leverage that mm-hmm. when you go out on your own. And that's part of the that will affect the speed with which you can build a viable business and a viable, a sustainable business where you have leads coming in, you have a way to get the work done and you know, you're making enough money and working the right number of hours for the lifestyle you want to lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You triggered an idea actually when, when I didn't start a mailing list, but before I went solo, the job I had before I went solo, uh, I was working at uh, a small firm and wrote a monthly column in the trade publication, like almost exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was my name on the byline yeah. and it, it was huge. I was like, you know, I mean, the 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 audience for that magazine was maybe 3,000 people, probably 2,000 people, but like every single one of them knew who I was. And I only knew, you know, I didn't know who every single yeah. one of them was, <laughs> <laughs> right? So... It, it was very beneficial because it gives you this street cred like, oh, this person's like, I don't know, famous. It's like being famous, yeah. but in this local. Exactly. But yeah, and but it was under, it was because. Which, which is even better because it's so focused. Yeah. As long as it's not too small, which is almost never the case, then it's it's super useful. Yeah. And it was because my uh, my employer at the time was super generous and was I was like, why, you know, and I literally thought like, why would he because he had a column too. I think we, I think we both, I think it was two parts and he wrote one part and I wrote one part, but our, both of our names were on it. And I was like, wow, this is like, like, this is great. And so there, there might be opportunities for those Mm -hmm. folks who still are in house to do something like that. You know, like, um, maybe someone internally is already, uh, doing something like this and they want to, they want a week off or a month off and you can come in and do it, write something for them under your name or, uh, like Rochelle said, jump into, you know, write something for the newsletter, the company newsletter. Is a, you just need to be, you just need to be writing and speaking and putting it in front of people who probably are going to care. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and understand that whoever is uh, managing the production of that 
that external communications piece, they never have enough content. They never have enough people writing interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. If you go to that person and you let them know that you'll even do like a last minute replacement when somebody doesn't meet a deadline, they will be your friend for life. They will make sure that your articles get positioned well. I mean, that's that's an easy one for a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. Befriend the communications person who's running that thing. You just mentioned the word position. Did I? <laughs> yes. So there's there's an aspect of marketing. So we've been talking about marketing activities so far. You know, like write and speak, write and speak, write and speak. Do it a lot. Don't try not to skip a week. Do it more if you can. All that, right? But we haven't talked about what should you write about, or who should you write for, or or how are you different from other people who do what you do? Perhaps competitors or or brand neighborhood people and. I, I would feel remiss if we didn't spend a few minutes talking about positioning, which is the sort of strategic level decision you make about about the answers to those questions. What what do I do? What do I call myself? What do I say I do when someone asks me, oh, what do you do? Who is my ideal buyer, my, my the target market that is going to benefit the most from my area of expertise? What is the expensive problem that I help them with? How am I different from competitors in this space in a way that's meaningful to the people that I want to serve. If you can answer those questions, uh, which is very difficult and takes most people a long time to figure out. Some people get it right away because of past experience, but for someone just starting out, it might be really difficult to answer all four of those questions. Um, but as you're doing your marketing activities, if you have a background process in your mind of like, what are the answers to those questions? You might start to recognize patterns in your in the referrals that you're getting or in the comments that you're getting on your social media posts or uh, on your mailing list or on your YouTube channel, uh, in conversations with past clients. There might be these little things that pop up. As long as you're looking for them, there might be these little inspirations, these little, little aha moments of like, oh, yeah, that is my ideal buyer. That is the target market I want to serve. That is why the people who love working with me consider me different and wouldn't even consider any other of the competitors. And the effect of sort of ironing out your positioning and getting it laser focused and, you know, over time, getting it really, really laser focused on, on a specific, well, really specific answer to all of those questions, then your marketing activities can sort of revolve around that central position and reinforce that strategy. So, and the result of that is that you create this big body of work that has a flywheel effect where before you know it, and when I say before you know it, it could, it could be six months, it could be nine months, it could be 12 months, it could be longer. But once you have, a, once you have an effective positioning statement worked out in your mind, you can become the go-to person for your thing, for that market in a shockingly quick amount of time. And, and then back at the beginning, we were talking about work magically showing up on your desk when you're an employee. When you've got your positioning nailed and you're regularly doing some of these marketing activities, the magic comes back and you start getting inbound leads. Mm -hmm. And you're like, and, and one of the questions you ask them is like, how did you hear of me? And they're like, I don't even remember you're everywhere. It could have been this podcast, it could have been YouTube, <laughs> it could have been LinkedIn, it could have been a referral because you're just ubiquitous in their little in the in the, the the title pool that you've chosen to serve 
there's a lot of word of mouth. There's a lot of people are reading the same things and listening to the same things. So if you show up on all of those things and you're talking about the same thing, you're hammering it, hammering it, hammering it, then you're going to be positioned in their minds in a way that's extremely memorable. So when they find someone or when they find that they have the exact problem that they know you solve, they're going to think of your name. They're going to remember you and they're going to reach out to you. Yeah, I think positioning is is a process when you're first starting. Because when you're first starting, you're like, all right, I need to have a roof over my head. And, and so your positioning will probably be really messy and blurry and wide. Yes. Right? It's like, it'll be like, I do this, whatever your skill set was. Mm-hmm. And the, the person who is successful the, and stays sustainably successful is the one who keeps asking with every assignment, you know, how do I adjust the, the binoculars for <laughs> this? Like, what, what do I want to zero in more tightly on? Or what about this did I not like? Like, maybe I never want to work for, I don't know, pizza restaurants again. But boy, I'd really, I really like working with fine dining establishments. I mean, just as an example. So as you dial in every single time you do an assignment, even if you just do it as an after action review where you say, you know, what happened? What went well? What would I do differently the next time? All of those things will help you to dial into your positioning in a really organic way so that you're not kind of coming up to this point where all your work is dropped off. You're in a panic and you go, what do I do? Like, do I focus on something? Do I do this? You have this sort of like existential crisis. We want to avoid that. Just every time, just ask yourself, what about this? Would I love to do again? And what about this is a no way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, it seems paradoxical at first when people think about narrowing down on, like, say, a particular target market or a particular skill that you have instead of, like, all the wonderful things you could do as a generalist. I could help anyone, back end, front end, whatever, APIs, you name it. Security, cybersecurity, yeah, call me. You know, uh, those, it's like you have all these skills, so it seems like, it seems like not advertising or not, not letting the world know that you have all of these skills seems like a... A mistake, uh, but you're but that's you're still thinking in resume mode. If that's if that's the case, you're still thinking like, oh, I want to be a extremely useful. Uh, I can do anything. I can get anything done. Kind of employee. It's not attractive in the marketplace, especially you know. I would say particularly in consulting, it's it's not it's certainly not a high value in the marketplace. Uh, the the sort of jack of all trades, master of none. It's like when someone's in the market for a master of something then they're going to have a, a nice, a much better budget for it than when looking for a jack of all trades. So anyway, so it can feel, it can feel strange or it seems like the opposite of the right thing to do to focus on, say, your most valuable skill or your highest value target market or your favorite target market and, and, and you know, not speak in your marketing activities to people outside of those boundary lines it feels like well i'm cutting off a lot of opportunity if i do that but it's it's you know we say it all the time it's the exact opposite the reverse is true suddenly people Are you there? yep suddenly people recognize you as a solution to an expensive problem that they have where otherwise they wouldn't have so it, it seems counterintuitive it seems like a paradox you know- but over time niching down into a a smaller, like a bucket of fish instead of the whole ocean, uh, can be extremely lucrative. You know, it just hit me like one of the reasons I think it feels so counterintuitive is when you're moving up the corporate ladder, you are rewarded for becoming a generalist, 
right? Because you start with your your small, very small skill set, and then you grow that skill set, and then you get promoted. And guess what? Usually when you get promoted, you have to learn how to manage, or you have to learn a different skill set. So as you move up the ladder, you become more general and less specialized. The opposite is true when you are a soloist in the expertise space, you know, selling your services as a consultant, the more specialized you are up to a point, right, the more memorable you become and the more lucrative it is. In mm-hmm. a corporation, that's, that specialist, in consulting firms, they can do it. But in a regular corporation, that specialist tends not to be rewarded very well. They tend to kind of stay in the lower echelons right. of the organization. It's yeah, that's true. the exact opposite when you put out your shingle. Uh, I was reading a piece by a woman who was making the case that generalist is the way to go. And and I realized she was the head of an organization and had grown up internally. And I thought, yeah, for you, it's absolutely true. And it made her so much more valuable. But for somebody just like her who had their own business, that would be the kiss of death. Mm-hmm. Certainly to, yeah, it's not to say that you can't have diverse interests and be a well-rounded person. But when it comes to the thing that you're going to talk about in your marketing activities, it is very difficult to be memorable for lots of things. It's it's much easier. You're, you're playing on easy mode if you're just trying to be remembered by the best buyers for the most valuable thing that you do. And, and once they come in the door, then you can have a conversation around maybe if they have other needs and maybe you want to serve those other needs. Then you can have that conversation once they've entered the sales process or maybe even after you've done a project with them and delivered it, uh, they might need some sort of follow-on service that you also do. That's fine. And the, the visual metaphor that I use for this is like, if you know, if you, there's this Irish pub near my house, they have 200 beers on tap, but they're not all on the sandwich board sign on the sidewalk. It just says best Guinness in town voted five years running it, and as if they only sell one beer. Of course, they don't only sell one <laughs> beer, but it's the thing. But, but when I think, oh, Guinness would be good, I'm going to McBride's, right? Like, like that's the that's the thing. The the idea of uh, I guess I guess just to, to wrap this up, because we've talked about this a million times in the past and you can binge listen for that. But the 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 importance of getting someone to remember you when they or someone they know need has the pain that you fix. Like they know and they boom, they have this Rolodex moment. Like, oh, I know someone that has that that issue. Then that's when that's that is where the magic happens. If they can't remember you in the moment that they need you, then what was all that marketing for? So like maybe maybe at any given time, let's say you were advertising or let's say you were yeah, advertising just to a general audience, or even a tar- even your target market. You're, let's say you're, 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 I don't know, writing regularly in a, a, a publication for you know your target market. Maybe maybe it's something real blurry like small businesses, and your general small business advice. At any given time, there's something like two or three percent of people are going to be ready to buy the thing that you sell. And the other 95 plus percent of people are not ready to buy. So when that does happen that they are ready to buy and you're not showing up regularly talking about a particular thing, they are never going to remember you 
They might remember they read an article, but they can't find it. And who wrote that? I don't remember. But if you are the go-to person for a specific thing, and when you're out in the market talking about that specific thing over and over and over, I'm the dog lawyer. I'm the dog lawyer. I'm the dog lawyer. If your dog bites somebody, you call me. If something happens with your vet to your dog, you call me. I'm the dog lawyer. I'm the dog lawyer. Then when something goes happens with their dog or they hear a story of something happened to somebody's dog, they're going to remember the dog lawyer. So anyway, so it, I'm just trying to illustrate that even though it seems like you're leaving a lot of opportunity on the table by narrowing down, it's the thing that makes the magic happen. Well, think of it this way. Early on, you know, maybe you're, you haven't started writing yet, but you're talking to your friends and your former colleagues and you're talking to them about your new business. Think of it in terms of a trigger. Like what is the, what does that other person have to hear to know that they call you in? Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, here are the three triggers. No, <laughs> one, just pick one because nobody will ever remember three, but they probably will remember one if they care about you. Mm-hmm. And so just find that one thing when you're speaking one to one with people. And it's probably not going to be what you use as you as you grow, you'll morph. But people, when you talk to them, they need like one thing to remember. And asking them to remember anything more than one thing is pretty much impossible. So yeah. find that one trigger on when to bring you in. Yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. It's, you know, I don't know, we could probably go on forever talking about this, but we should probably wrap up. Let's, I guess, I guess it would be interesting to kind of close this positioning piece and the focusing and niching down and don't be a generalist and specialize in all of that um, by sort of following on what you just said, which is that, you know, this this will evolve over time. It doesn't need to be forever. It's It, it could be that after year two, when you've figured out a good positioning statement, it's you've propagated it through your messaging, your marketing activities are all revolving around this, and you're starting to attract, you've got a reliable pipeline of people in your chosen target market, but you're also reliably getting a similar target market. You know, like, you know, you've been getting developers, you've been targeting developers, but now you're getting designers too, like web designers too. It's like, oh, okay, well, you can blur a little bit. You can move up. You can blur your focus a little bit. And because you've got this pipeline mm-hmm. going, you've got the flywheel effect happening. All that content is still out there. People are still going to be finding it. And you can, you know, add a new vertical or add a new target market, add a new a new area of people who you want to serve. And and you can, you just, in other words, you don't have to stay super niche down forever if you don't want to. As long as you get that pipeline going, that fire started, then you can start throwing bigger and bigger logs on the on it, and it won't go out. It'll just continue to get bigger. So it's not forever. Yeah, but it, but until you get that small spark lit into a fire, you're just gonna flail around. So it's look for that look for that spark, mm-hmm. and then you can go take it wherever your audience will let you take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cool. Anything else we should? should share before folks before we let folks go no (laughs) (laughs) i usually always have some kind of a of a coda at the end but no no i think we're good cool well i I, maybe the one thing would be to scroll back i mean there are a million 
useful resources on the internet around these ideas for consultants and freelancers and coaches. Uh, but you know, you could scroll through the back catalog of business of authority and look for titles that interest you or topics that we brought up on this episode. There might be something back there. Uh, and you can also find our contact information on the website. If you want to shoot either one of us an email, we're always happy to respond. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.